Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do, is a saying attributed to the influential psychiatrist Carl Jung. Of course, when he said it, it wasn't a new concept by any means, but one I'm sure that is old as the words able to express it. We all know that it is true that actions speak louder than words, or maybe we don't. After all, I see a nation that spent the last several months embroiled in a tortuous presidential election cycle, an election in which many have placed such a heavy weight on politicians' statements. Politicians who I think we all consider to be among the least likely to do what they say they will do. While there are many Americans who felt they were choosing merely the best of the worst, too many Americans, perhaps maybe some of you listening to this, felt they were making an existential decision. What I mean by that is that many felt that they were choosing because the other candidate would destroy the country, that if so-and-so won, then this country would cease to exist. And if one thinks that someone will destroy the country, then I'd say it logically follows that you believe the other one is the only one who can save it. And yet, despite all of the duplicity from the candidates that we know we can ultimately count on, many are hanging their hopes on their false promises. Why, contrary to the advice of the psalmist, do we put our trust in princes and princesses and human beings in whom there is no help? Well, be frank, because what they say sounds good to us. Because what they tell us embodies what we as individuals see as beautiful. And honestly, some of what they tell us really is beautiful. However, the problem isn't with what they're showing you. Although, don't get me wrong, that sometimes is the problem. But the major problem isn't what they're showing you. It's what they aren't showing you. Universal health care is certainly something I think that, in concept, we probably all want. But there are some practical matters that make realizing that dream difficult, like how much it would cost without various ways of restricting what's covered by such a program. And of course, in the ideal world, no one wants to limit anything. Of course, we always want to be safe from crime and bad actors. But if it takes a military-style police force to accomplish that, and one that too often kills innocent citizens, especially if they're more likely to be of a certain race or class, then that ideal will not be reached. Anyway, what I'm trying to point out is that what they say, in concept at least, is beautiful. That is, at least until you put it in proportion with the rest of the structure. And that is what the other party spends their time pointing out, the ugly bits of what the other party is proposing. And truth generally lies somewhere in the middle. And why does truth lie in the middle? Because the truth is beautiful. It's the most beautiful of all these things. True beauty has proper balance and proportion. Now, do you believe what I just said? Do you believe that truth is beautiful? Do you believe in objective truth, objective beauty? I hope so. 
I hope so, because we believe that God himself is the standard by which we can judge truth, by which we can judge goodness, by which we can judge beauty. However, we live in a society that rejects subjective truth. Postmodernism is the dominant worldview right now. It rejects the, the ideas of universal reality, morality, truth, human nature, reason. I could go on. It permeates our worldview, and we have to have our eyes open to its tendencies that make the standard by which we judge truth and beauty to be ourselves rather than God, or quite frankly, anything that relies on something outside of our own selves and what we alone consider to be right, beautiful, and good. I know I've lived on this planet long enough to at least come to one truth, that I alone am not a very good judge of truth. Not everything I thought was good or right when I was younger has turned out to be so. And it's almost certainly the case that some of what I believe now will not be true either. St. Paul knew this too. He said as much in our epistle reading today. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself. Nothing. Yet, Am I not hereby justified? But he that judgeth me is the Lord. So how is it that one can know the truth? In order to find truth with a capital T, we need a guide, a foundation, something firm upon which we can examine things and determine their value. Ideally, something that has stood the test of time, something that's withstood earthquakes, famines, fearful sights, great signs from heaven, and yes, pestilences. Something that's withstood persecutions and martyrdoms, wars and far worse. Christianity meets that criteria for sure. It's survived despite countless threats from the inside and the outside. It's now two millennia old. And when you consider that it is the very continuation of first century Judaism, this one faith has survived from prehistoric times and provided life to people from the very foundations of human civilization. That this faith in him has been the rock that has sustained people throughout the ages should give even the most secular person a reason to pause. Yes, that alone should be a reason to rejoice on this Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete being the opening word of our introit in Latin, which means rejoice, and which lightens briefly the penitential purple of Lent to the rose vestments I wear today. But we see as Christians that we have even more to rejoice about because, as the introit goes on to say, the Lord is near. We rejoice because he's always been near. He walked with us in the garden, and he walks with us today. He walked with our ancestors, and he will walk with our descendants. What we believe in has provided a foundation for the world since its very creation. What we believe in is eternal. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it, despite various turmoils and griefs, despite direct and indirect attacks, and I'm confident that it will survive for millennia to come, for all eternity, because it is eternal not only in the sense that it has been around forever, but in the sense that it will be around forever. That 
is the sure foundation that cannot be shaken, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he is near, the same yesterday and today and forever. Some say that Christianity has lost its relevance in modern society, and that if we want to fill these pews, we have to find a way to restore its relevance. It's an easy trap to fall into, but as I've pondered the question, I've realized how hard it is to come up with ways to make Christianity relevant. And I've started to think to try to do so with too much fervency is largely misguided. Why? Because being relevant carries with it not just that something has a bearing on the present, but that it's meaningful or purposeful in current society or culture. When Christianity was founded, it was hardly meaningful or purposeful in its current society or culture. When Christianity was founded, it, it hardly mattered to anyone that was there. And in that sense, it was utterly irrelevant. In today's gospel reading, John the Baptist sits in a dirty, sparse cell in prison for telling the truth. The cross was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the pagans. Christianity was in direct opposition to all the societies it was born into. There was no room for Jesus in the end. In the end, and there is still no room for him in our society today. Christianity wouldn't please everyone, nor did it try. And even at the height of the Christian empire, which you might want to argue would be the best time to be a Christian, true Christianity remained quite elusive. And the monks, clergy, and laity who were at best exiled or worse tortured and martyred by emperors or clergy because of their steadfastness to Orthodox Christianity should prove that point all too easily to us. If you're with us today because you're hoping that people will like you more for being a better Christian, maybe you should find your comfort somewhere else. But I'm here to warn you that there really isn't anything cool about being a Christian. Giving alms might be noble, but society tells us we should save those extra bucks to take a nicer vacation, buy a fancier car, or buy, well, more of, well, anything. Fasting? Our obesity epidemic should tell you that's not very popular. Acting with love even when it inconveniences us? Perhaps this is a tired example, but maybe like wearing a mask, staying home unless absolutely necessary to protect our neighbors from a disease that's already killed nearly one in every thousand Americans in less than a year. To many, even many so-called Christians, that's just not worth it. Better to assert your freedom than to suffer a minor inconvenience for a few months to protect your neighbor from long-term disability or death. So tell me, brothers and sisters, how are we to make Christianity relevant to our society? If we did so, I don't think we'd recognize it. It wouldn't be truth anymore. Today, Christianity is as irrelevant as it was 2,000 years ago. Yet rejoice, for the Lord is near. That irrelevant band of 11 apostles, betrayed by one of their own, whose leader was dead in the tomb, who ran away in fear, who are now trembling behind the walls of the upper room, didn't need relevancy to conquer the world. They needed the good news. Just like John, who sent his disciples from prison, needed the good news. Just like we need the good news. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel. That's the good news. We don't need relevancy, at least not in the sense of having meaning or purpose in our society. Instead, we need vibrant beauty. 
Jesus didn't answer John's question about whether he was the Messiah by saying that, yeah, I am. Many others had done so before and after him. Jesus returned instead with a response not about words, but about actions. Jesus embodied our opening quote, you are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Those others who claimed to be the Messiah only said they'd do something and then failed to live up to their promises. Jesus actually did what he said. In doing, action implies the vibrant beauty that life and the vibrant, beautiful life the church needs. We need action, not to be relevant, but to demonstrate to the world what the truth is. And when people see the truth, they will know it to be beautiful. Our goal isn't to be relevant, but to be beautiful, to be the light of light set on a hill, a beautiful blue light that irresistibly draws us like flies caught in a tractor beam until zap. Before you say my analogy needs work, we're indeed drawn to die, to die to this world in order to be resurrected into a new life in but set apart from this world. Yes, Christianity is about life, but to get there, you have to die. I'm not only talking about your physical death and the eternal life to come, but your old worldly life that dies so that you can live a life in Christ, clothed in Christ, a life that shines with eternal beauty, to which the most hard-hearted person can't help but be drawn. God is not just something you hear about. He's something you witness. Many speak about those who fall in love with the concept of orthodoxy by reading books, but become disoriented, discombobulated, and sometimes disillusioned when they finally come to a service. Our services are such otherworldly experiences from our everyday physical experiences. There are smells and bells, capes and other unusual clothing, people constantly moving, crossing themselves, bowing, kneeling, standing. We sing, and not always in the modes and keys that people are generally familiar with. Somehow, the otherworldly mental perspectives of orthodoxy are more easily accessible to them. But they didn't expect it to involve the rest of their bodies. But orthodoxy is a beautiful balance. It can't be all in our heads. To be beautiful, it must rightly balance with our physical actions. And our actions speak loudly. Not just those we do in our liturgical dance with our physical actions, but those that we do when, uh, during our more mundane and ordinary day-to-day -day life that we do each day to show that we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, that we are willing to sacrifice as Christ did to save those around us. That's the beauty that Peter experienced when his brother Andrew, instead of engaging in some kind of endless mental gymnastics about whether Jesus was the Messiah, simply said, come and see, and the rest is history. But what will those who come to see us see? Will they see Christ? Will they see only talking the talk but not walking the walk? Will they see the beauty of the Lord? Or will they see someone just like everybody else they encounter in the world they are a part of every day? Will they see a reed shaken with every wind, willing to bend to whatever the social and political winds are blowing? shaking in fear when the cold wind brings disaster into our lives? Or will they see a messenger who beautifully prepares the way to see the Christ? Will they see someone who prefers the soft trappings and comfortable trappings of this world or who is willing to walk the dark road of Gethsemane 
to lay down his life for his friends. Wherever you are on your journey to show the beauty of Jesus Christ to yourself and those around you, I pray as we approach Christmas that you'll find room in the end of your hearts for him, that you will grow and help him grow into full maturity within you, that you show him through your actions to those around you, that those who come and see will be drawn to his beautiful irrelevancy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is born. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.